you introduce yourself at the very beginning? Okay, for those of you that came in late that uh, don't have a watch that keeps correct time, um, this is Isaac, this is Jason's son. Jason served here as interim for quite a bit of a time, and so this is his son Isaac that uh, is here with us. You're going to be here later on this month too, right? Yes, yes, you are. I'm just telling you you are right now. He doesn't seem to know, so we're just telling you. I think the 22nd, something like that. You're going to be back here again. But right now, Greg and his family, they are either on the beach or en route to the beach right now. And so be praying for him. He's, he's going through a lot of hardships today. Um, going on vacation down to the Mexico Riviera, wherever it is right now. And so Isaac is here. So we just appreciate you, Isaac. Thank you for coming in. Um, you know, when you... When you're new or you are not haven't been in some place for a long time, you don't know what everybody does, you don't know what everybody's accustomed to, and then everybody that's here is already accustomed to a certain mindset or, or a certain way of doing things, and so it can be awkward. And so I appreciate you, Isaac, for, for leading us in worship this morning. Thank you, young men, for helping take up the offering. I hope you came in with the Bible, and I want you to take it and turn with me to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. And also, when you came in, hopefully you got a bulletin on the back of that. There'll be some notes that will help walk us through God's Word this morning. The, uh, it's kind of a fill-in-the-blank type thing. The notes will be behind me on the screen if you want to follow along. I think I've got a new idea, Adam. I, as I was sitting back there thinking, you know, this time of the year, everybody thinks about July the 4th, and everybody gets excited, and you know, you, you're talking about this morning in Sunday school about setting the fireworks off when it gets dark. I think that if me, instead of me getting up here just saying you all need to be awake and you all need to be engaged and you all need to be act like you're happy, maybe if we just set off a couple of four inch cannons in the back and you got a good, you know, a good rocket go up and boom, everybody would wake up and smile. I just kind of wonder if we should maybe implement that moving forward. I was thinking about that. I was like, man, we should start a fireworks show inside the church every morning. And that would really get people tuned up and worked up. Yeah, see, and he and I could have Adam back there with some Roman candles if everybody started nodding off. He could just pop them in the back of the head with a Roman candle. I think he would, I think, well, you'd get too much fun out of that, so we may not do that. Anyways. Judges chapter 2, we are going to uh, be looking at God's Word. We have been walking through the book of Joshua for quite some time, looking at what the book of Joshua teaches us about success. And, and the first half of the series, we're looking at the positive things that we see in the book of Joshua, that they model for us or give us examples of what it looks like to be successful, things that we can implement in our lives to be successful. The world around us has this concept or these ideas of what it means to be successful. Academia, uh, the the, the culture, advertisement, marketing, media, social media, everybody says they know what it means to be successful. But what does God deem success? So we, so we spent the first half of the series looking through the book of Joshua as far as models or examples from the people of how they practice the success in the eyes of God. And then this, this second half has been going through looking at the negative things, the things that they did wrong or the things, the mistakes they made. And trying to learn from their stubbles, from their hindrances, and trying to learn, hey, there are still examples we have of how to be successful by learning from their mistakes. So, I realize you may be hearing me say, well, we've been in the book of Joshua, and now you're saying, but I'm in Judges. Well, because Judges kind of gives us the closing of the book of Joshua. If you're to go back just one page in Joshua chapter 24, you'll see the death of Moses. But then if you also look down in Judges chapter 2 and in verse 6, it also talks about the death of Moses. So, really, where Judges opens up is where the story of Joshua and the people come coming into the promised land is coming to a conclusion. So either 
even though we're in the book of Judges, we are wrapping up this series on Joshua and this series about finding success and, and living this successful life, not only as an individual believer, as a Christian, but how do we live a successful life as a church? And we're in a community. And we are surrounded by lostness. We are surrounded by marginal faith. We're surrounded by a lot of people that say they believe, but they don't live like they believe. We are surrounded by a culture that has become apathetic. They have become anemic. We are surrounded by an entire Christian environment that says we place Jesus as a Lord and Savior of our life, but yet we bow to the altar of money or popularity, or we bow to the altar of man and not the altar of God. And so we ask ourselves, well, how do we find this success? We're here on July 4th, and I don't need to remind you or tell you what July 4th means. 245 years ago is when the independence, the Declaration of Independence was ratified. It wasn't the signing of the Constitution. And in fact, a a little history note that some of you may not be aware of, the majority of the signatures on the Declaration of Independence was on July the 2nd. But it wasn't fully signed, fully ratified on July the 4th. And so for the last 245 years, we have been coming together as a nation to remember and to celebrate our birthday. When our founding fathers declared their independence from the tyranny and from the governorship of Great Britain. And they said, no more. It wasn't the end of the Revolutionary War. It wasn't the signing of the Constitution. This is the day that it was ratified that said, we are now our own independent people. And so for the last 245 years, we have been remembering what took place. Now, what we do today doesn't, I don't think, really resembles a lot of what they did 245 years ago. I don't think George Washington had a big old barbecue at his house. I don't think Thomas Jefferson had the big fireworks show in the community. I, I don't think they got together and had the slip and slides and the pools and all, and all the, the, the celebrations. I don't think the local communities there in Mount Vernon had a big old celebration fireworks thing. I think it was something a little more low-key. They were bracing for the battle to come. But for 245 years, we have remembered what they did. This morning, I want to share with you a story that happened around 3,400 years ago. See, if I was to ask you, do you remember 245 years from now or 3,400 years from now, I'm going to just assume the majority of us say, I would rather be remembered 3,400 years from now instead of 245 years from now. So as we come into this story here in Judges, 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 Judges chapter 2, we're coming into a picture of how the story ends on this spotlight on the people's conquest of the promised land. We get a picture of how they finish. Now, the rest of the book of the Judges is primarily about after the, the reign of Joshua, after that generation died off, then God began to bring up judges that ruled the people for a period of time until they got to the final judge and they said, now we want a king. And so then they brought the king, the king line in. And so that just went from one era to another era. So we are here at the end of Joshua. From here on, you're going to have multiple judges that will reign during multiple times. And so that reign or that leadership that God has provided is going to pivot. And so right here we come to this end of the era. We have Moses leading the people out of Egypt and the big exodus and then he hands off the leadership down to Joshua and then Joshua's going to die and pretty much the people are going to be leaderless 
for a large period of time except for these sporadic judges that God raises up to save them from a particular problem or through, or through a particular conflict and they just kind of go along until Samuel finally they press Samuel long enough and they give them Saul the first king of Israel. So here in Judges chapter 2 we get the picture of how it kind of comes to a close. And listen to this. Verse 1 of Judges chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Boksham and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I shall never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? Now, this may seem kind of strange to some of us, and some of you may be, I don't know what in the world Spence is talking about around now. Some of us are very unfamiliar because we don't know the context. Well, let me just give you the context. Joshua had come in. He had brought the people across the Jordan River. They began to conquer the entire land. God had told them, I will be with you. God had told them that I will take care of you. They have come in there, and they defeated Jericho. Then they defeated Ai, and then systematically, they started going through the land. You get to the end of the book of Joshua, and Joshua, brothers and all together and say, I'm getting ready to die but I want you all to be faithful. I want you to continue to serve God. And they said, oh yes, yes, we will be faithful. But then why does the angel of the Lord there in verse 1 come to them and bring a message from the Lord saying, you have done wrong. It's because they had failed to keep obedience with God. And here in your notes, you're going to see that I just put up there four actions to foster future success. I'm going to take these in the negative and try to put them in the positive, but to think about how is it that we maintain the success long term? How do we live the kind of life that people are talking about First Baptist Church Wellston 3,000 years from now? I realize the majority of us say, oh no, I want Jesus to come back before then. They've been saying that for 3,000 years. So instead of just living like in a first... Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians kind of way that we're just living for the day because we're thinking Jesus come back tomorrow. We need to be living like Jesus can come back when Jesus is told to come back. That we're going to keep being faithful. That we're going to keep being the kind of people that God has called us to be. So how do we do that? Well, the first thing I want you to see is that we need to celebrate obedience. What is taking place here in these first two verses here in Judges chapter 2 is that people had failed to be obedient to God. Where do you get that from, Spence? Well, you look back up in Judges chapter 1 and look at verse 27. Notice what happened. As the people come in, they start conquering the land. Notice what took place. It says in verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages. Skip down to verse 29. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Verse 30. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Echo. Then you go out to the, very part, the last part of verse 32, for they did not drive them out. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. Verse 34, Dan, back in the hill country, for they did not allow them to come in the plain. All these pictures of where when they are coming in, doing the conquest, they conquered the land, but they didn't drive out the people. They had done partial obedience, but not complete obedience. If you're a parent for any period of time, you understand that partial, partial obedience is still disobedience. 
You tell that kid to clean up his room and that kid goes into the room. That's not obedience. That is not what you told the child to do. And then you go to the child and say, I told you to clean up the room. And they say, well, I did. I came into the room and you said, no, I told you to clean up the room. Yeah, but I'm in the room. Don't I get credit for partial obedience? No, because partial obedience is still disobedience. And you think about where we're coming in to this story. God promised to give them success. God had told them, I will take care of you if you will be faithful to me. Let me read for you Joshua chapter 24. Listen to what God said. God said, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. The two kings and the Amorites, it was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built. And you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. God is telling them, I promised you success. I will provide for your needs. I just want you to be obedient to me. And I think, I believe, my conviction is God is still asking the same thing from us today. Be obedient. We see a society that is crumbling around us. We see morality that is in decay. We see truth that is questioned on every front. We see a society that is feeding off of itself. We see a political system that is broken and caustic. We see all of these problems around us and we say, wonder why all that is taking place. Maybe brothers and sisters, the reason it's taking place, you go back to Judges chapter 2 and verse 2, it is we have not obeyed the voice of God. He's giving us an example. He comes in. God is speaking through the angel. There are these first two verses of Judges chapter 2. And he says, I told you to be obedient. I told you not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And you shall break down those altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? He is looking at them and saying, why have you not been obedient to me? And I don't know about you, but I sit back and go, what are you talking about, Jesus? What are you talking about? God, I'm doing everything you tell me to do. And so you start reading his word and start realizing that every single one of us falls short on a regular basis. I think that one of the things that we need to be reminded about is how quickly compromise can take root in our lives. How quickly we begin to compromise on the little things and the little things and the little things. And I put there in your notes, sometimes we are all too often quicker to celebrate compromise but not holiness. We're more willing to say we're not going to uphold God's word as being holy. We're not going to uphold God's word as being truth. We're going to celebrate the compromises when you give in. We're going to celebrate the compromises when you work together. We're going to celebrate the compromises when you just get along. That is the issue that is taking place there in Judges chapter 2. As these tribes of Israel, as they went into the promised land, and they went in to conquer a people, instead of driving them out, and instead of removing them, removing their pagan worship, removing their idols, they tried to make home with them. They tried to make a life with them. They said, we're going to come in and we know that God told us to get you out because you're going to be a thorn and a snare to us. But instead of telling you you got to get out, we're going to give you a house. We're going to give you a place. We're going to give you a bedroom. We're going to give you a seat at the table. We are going to come in and compromise with the culture. And church, I understand that we need to be relevant in the culture in which we're in. I realize that we need to reach a culture in which we're in. But nowhere in the world have we ever been commanded to compromise with the world. 
We've never been told to compromise with sin. We've never been told to compromise with darkness. And too often we celebrate the compromise but not the holiness. And so God is coming in here in these two first two verses in Judges chapter 2 and he says, what in the world are you doing? You're not being obedient to me and you're compromising yourself with the world. Let me give you an example about this. There's a young lady by the name of Shaw Karee Richardson. Anybody ever heard of her? Well, you should. She is an incredibly, incredibly talented, fast young lady. She ran the 100 meters, I think it was just this last week, in less than 11 seconds. I can't even walk from here to the back door in less than 11 seconds. And she is running this thing. In fact, I watched in the Olympic trial for the United States, she ran it in a 10.58. The fastest woman in the United States in the 100 meter sprint. They were projecting for her and a lady from Kenya or Jamaica to be the top two front runners for this coming up Olympics in Tokyo. And she was just stealing the show. She had this orange dyed hair, these fingernails that went out to about here. And she runs this way. She runs the race. She goes up and she tells her family. It was just a beautiful story about this lady, Miss Richardson. Until she failed the drug test. And the whole news outlets came alive. She failed the drug test, had marijuana in her system. So therefore she is banned and not going to be able to compete in the 100 meter sprint. She might be eligible to compete in the relay, but the one event that she was going to be the favorite on, she is now not allowed now to compete in. Now my aim by bringing this up is not to try to cast judgment or try to cast any kind of ire against the lady. She seemed like a phenomenal young lady. She seemed like a lady that has a lot of talent and a lot of skill, and I wish her only the best. What I was troubled by is the response from the media. As soon as the news broke that she was going to be banned for failing a drug test, here it came. The Huffington Post ran a story that the Olympics do not want black women to win. Seth Godin came out and aligned her being banned to something that is racist and rooted in systemic prejudice against minorities. And other figures were coming out and saying the reason why she is now being unsuspended, the reason why this happened was because she's black and because she's a female and all of the system is based against her. My question is, is that she broke a stated rule. And the... The punishment for that stated rule was suspension. Period. But yet the world is all around us saying we need to compromise. We need to give in. That's not fair. That's not right. We have all these reasons of assigning motive. And yet the reality is, is that there was a rule. There was a rule broken. And now there is a punishment for the rule being broken. I didn't write the rule. I didn't make the rule. It wasn't my idea to have the rule. There is some authority that put a rule there. And when the rule was broken, a judgment was handed down. That is the same thing when it comes to the word of God. I didn't write the word of God. I didn't decide the word of God. It's not my authority on the word of God, but God's word is God's word. And so when we break it, it's not for up for you and I to say, well, you know what? I don't like that one. I'm going to rewrite that one. It's not up for you and I to say, well, God isn't loving or God isn't fair or God isn't nice. It's not up for you and I to decide what we are going to define as truth. God has told us what is truth. And yet we don't celebrate obedience 
with as much enthusiasm we celebrate sin. We don't celebrate being faithful to God and being holy in the eyes of God as much as we do living like the world. And I wonder if it's not because success without gratitude can be seductive. If it's not that we have success in this world, maybe success monetarily, maybe success academically, maybe success in prosperity, maybe success in the goals that you have set for your life, and when you get this success, you don't have the gratitude for God because you assume you did it, because you assume you earned it, because you assume you deserved it, and so therefore you are the one that got it for yourself, and that becomes very seductive when we stop remembering that everything that we have is a gift from God. So that's why you go into the judge in Joshua chapter 24, even here in Judges chapter 2, God is coming, speaking through the angel, looking at the people and saying, what are you doing? You're engaged in this disobedience. You're not doing what I told you to do. Why haven't you obeyed me? And brothers and sisters, I think that in order for us to foster this future success of not only us, but us as a church, we're going to need to regain that celebration of obedience. How does that look, preacher? What does that look like when we celebrate obedience? We gotta get excited about people being obedient to God. We gotta get excited about people having a heart for God. We gotta get excited about people sharing their faith with other people. We'll celebrate more at a sports thing than we will at a witnessing thing. We'll celebrate more about people being uh, people being academically or athletically superior than we will about them being evangelistically fervor. When was the last time we celebrated somebody sharing with someone else about Jesus Christ? When was the last time we celebrated people coming together for prayer? When was the last time we celebrated somebody reading through the entire Bible in a year? When was the last time we celebrated someone that came to church every single Sunday? When was the last time we celebrated some of these things? I don't want to put it on the spot or embarrass her, but my sister-in-law for a period of time had a perfect attendance at Sunday school, right? 13 years? 18? 18 years. She never missed a Sunday school for 18 years. You want to talk about something to celebrate, that's what we should be celebrating. And yet too often we don't celebrate because so few of us are actually practicing obedience. So the angel of the Lord comes into the people here and judges the people that Joshua was leading and he says, ah, you have disobeyed God. You have not obeyed my voice there in verse 2. What is this that you have done? So then he goes on in verse 3 and notice what else he says. So now I say so he's speaking on behalf of God and he says so now I say I will not drive them out before you but they shall become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. The first thing that I want to point out to you is that we need to celebrate obedience. The second thing is that we need to confront thorns. We need to confront thorns. You may say, oh Spence, what are you talking about thorns? We need to confront thorns. This house we moved into a little bit over, a little bit less than a year ago, we moved in, there were some humongous blackberry patches. Now I realize you're all like, what's the problem with that? Because you ain't had a lot of blackberry patches in your backyard, have you? The thorn kind, and this had the extra thorn gene in that certain variety of cultivar. I mean, these were the kings of thorny blackberries. And if you know anything about blackberries, blackberries just don't take up this little podium area and then just say, that's it. No, they're like flies. (laughs) 
They're like termites. They're like any kind of thing. They infest and they infect everything that you had. And so I knew that, you know what? We can just ignore those blackberries. We can shut the mini blind. We can not go look that way when we go outside. But that's not going to do anything about the problem. Not until we address the issue or address the problem will a solution be found. So when you get here in verse 3, what God is saying through this angel, he is saying, I am going to bring these people, these people that you have allowed to remain, these people that you have compromised with, that should become a thorn in your side and become a snare to you. So what do we think about when we think about a thorn? Well, I put there a definition there in your notes. A thorn is anything that distracts, keeps your eyes off God. Keeps you from focusing on God. A new boat. A video game. A cell phone. A romantic relationship. Anything that distracts can be a thorn. Anything that agitates, gets you fired up, gets you mad, gets you uh, uh, in opposition to someone, gets you having strife and division. Anything that divides or anything that detracts. It keeps you from serving that which you have been called to serve. A thorn is anything that distracts, agitates, divides, or detracts from your faithfulness to God. That could be a thorn. And so the angel of God is speaking to the people on behalf of God and saying, okay, because you have chosen to compromise with this world, the things in this world will become a thorn to you. One of the hesitations I have, and I know some of you do it, one of the hesitations I have about people that just use their cell phone for their Bible during church is because of the notifications. And I don't know how you do it. I don't have that kind of self-discipline. If I'm sitting there and I have my Bible opened on my phone, and I am sitting there and all of a sudden, bing, I don't care if it's silence or not. Here you come, bing, I'm going to, well, I want to look at that. I want to see that. I want to see what's going on. I don't have the kind of discipline to do that. And that's one of my hesitations of really encouraging that or embracing that. Not because I think that I'm more, I'm more pious because I have a physical Bible, just because I don't have the distractions. My phone is up in the desk, in the drawer, and I'm not worried about the vibration or the dings or the flashes or the bulbs or nothing like that. I can have just a focus right here. Now, some of you are able to do that. Some of you are able to have a black box hanging on your wall in your living room. And you're not tempted to watch filth or compromise with immodesty or to watch things that Jesus wouldn't be pleased with. You're not tempted to do that. I am. And there's others of you in this room that are. And those can be a thorn. A job can be a thorn. An item can be a thorn. Money can be a thorn. Fame can be a thorn. Success can be a thorn. Popularity can be a thorn. Any of those things, when we begin to compromise with the world, when we begin to make... Be more lovey-dovey with the world than we are with God. These things can become a thorn. And so the angel of God, on behalf of God, says they will be a thorn in your side and their God shall be a snare to you. In other words, what God is saying is thorns are never benign. Benign is a medical term talking about something that is friendly or something that is non-threatening. Thorns are never benign. They will always come at you. They say confession is good for the soul but bad for reputation. So before it gets out there, yesterday I was running a skid steer 
trying to clean up some of these thorns. And I became immobile. Immobilized in this skid steer. It wouldn't go backwards. It wouldn't go forward. So I get out of the skid steer and I'm in a really big bind because I need to get this thing out. I take my work truck and hook onto it because I'm going to pull it out and now the work truck is stuck. And now I'm in a really bigger bind because I really don't know what else to do. So about that time, I don't know, I think the Holy Spirit van called and texted me and said, how's it going? I'm not going good. He said, well, you can use my tractor. So we go to his house and get his tractor and the tractor's not pulling it out. So then I'm out there digging in this wet sand and all this remnant of these blackberry thorns. And it's like these blackberries are crying up from the grave. We will have the last laugh. So as I'm digging, trying to dig this machine out of the sand or to a point where I can pull it out of the sand, these thorns are sitting there and as thorns do, I've got scratches all up and down both legs because as I'm digging, I'm having to move the dirt and the thorns are getting their last dig. Thorns are never benign. You're never going to go to a black patch and it be harmless. You're never going to start attaching anything or attacking anything in this world and it's not going to cost some type of a sacrifice. We are talking about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning about how it is that we find this persecution. So many times we find persecution when we're being faithful to God. Satan is only going to attack those that he deems are threats. And if you're not being attacked, he must not consider you much of a threat. And so, and so we, we, God is reminding them that you're going to have these thorns and these thorns are not going to be benign. Any thorns that you have brought in your life or that you find in your life, we should never look at them and go, oh, you know what, they're not hurting anything. Oh, they're not going to take effect of me. Oh, I have power over that. Oh, that's not going to affect anybody. It's not going to hurt anybody. No one's going to know. Thorns always are malignant. So what do they do? Verse 4. So as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, listen, the, the people lifted up their voices and they wept and they called the name of that place Bochim. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now on the initial reading of that, you're going to hear that and you're going to go, okay, so the angel of the Lord came in and said, you're being disobedient to God. God is calling you to account. The judgment, the, re, the, the punishment is going to be that these people that you've allowed to stay are going to become thorns in your side. They're going to become snares to you. Then the people go, oh yeah, we were wrong. They cry. They sacrifice. Oh, see, everything is good. But you know what you don't see right there? Is you don't see Repentance. They didn't change anything. And you know what else you see there? It says they sacrificed there to the Lord. Where? At this place back in verse 5 called Bochim. Is that where God had told them to come and sacrifice to him? No! And this is where I want you to see the third thing. Is that we shun lip service. We want to try to foster a future success in this world, in our lives, in this church. We celebrate obedience. We confront thorns and we shun lip service. Yes, I read that the people began to cry. That's part of verse 4. They lifted up their voices and wept. But you know what? Tears do not guarantee repentance. I have a three-year-old. And you can look at that three-year-old and say, if you do not eat your supper, I'm going to spank your bottom. And that three-year-old will sit there and cry, oh, no, don't spank me. But you know what? He's eating. And he's not eating. 
He's not doing the things that he's supposed to do. All he does is cry and try to pray on your emotions and try to pray on your mercy. And it works on some of you all. But just because you see tears don't mean that you guarantee repentance. These people were just offering lip service. They had gotten upset. It said they lifted up their voices and they wept. They called the name of the Lord. They had tears. They had all of these things that looked the part. They even had emotions. But emotions do not change hearts. What changes hearts? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The transformation of the Holy Spirit inside of a person changing them from one likeness to the other. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore if anyone, he is a new creation. This idea that emotions do not transform hearts. Efforts do not transform hearts. Intentions do not transform hearts. And not all activity is faithful. Just because you're doing something doesn't mean you're being faithful to what God has called you to do. These people here in verse 4, all they were going to do is say, oh no, we were wrong. We're going to cry. We're going to offer a sacrifice. Then God's going to go on His way and we're going to go back to what we are doing. And sometimes that happens in our daily lives. We get a tragedy. Sickness befalls us. A bad news from the doctor's report. Some type of a national tragedy. The Sunday after September 11th in 2001, our churches were packed. Everybody coming and saying, Oh God, we need you. Oh God, we need help. Oh God, we are turning back to you. Where are they now? They said the right things. They did the right things to try to get them through this time they're in. But then as soon as that moment passed they went back to what they were doing and we only have people in the life of the church today you go to them are you being faithful oh preacher I'm being faithful do you love Jesus oh preacher I love Jesus they'll get involved they'll get active they'll look apart for a period of time and then as soon as somebody turns their back or as soon as somebody something else happens they go right back to what they were doing and brothers and sisters we need to shun lip service in the church but here's the last one Starting there in verse 6 all the way down through the rest of this little percopy there. It talks about Joshua. It says, And Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel, went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Verse 8. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him within the boundaries of an inheritance. And the uh, Timoth Heras in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. But notice in verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the generation of Joshua. The Joshua and all of those that are with Joshua that were saw the mighty works that God had done, had saw what God had taken place. They had crossed the Jordan. They had saw the conquest take place. They had saw the highs and the lows. They had saw all the things that God had brought about. They had made the covenant there in Joshua chapter 24. They heard the angel of the Lord speak here in Judges chapter 2. They had realized that their, their failures, they had realized other successes. They had saw all of this. All of those people were gathered to the Father. It means they had all had died out. And there arose, the last part of verse 10, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. That half of that verse is frightening to me. That, that second half of that verse is so frightening because what the picture that I'm getting is, is that the generation that I'm a part of that are having children right now, the generation that is 
in that throw of fatherhood, in that throw of having children, that it says that after, and we're just going to use this in my terminology, after my generation passed away, the generation that came after me, what does it say? They did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So let me just put this in Spence terminology. So when Spence died and was no more, Eli, Wyatt, Luke, Ezra, and Micah, grew up and did not know the Lord or the work the Lord had done. Now we're not talking about ten generations. We're not talking about five generations. We're not talking about three generations. We're talking in the span of one generation. You go from Spence who knows God and knows the work of God to the next generation that does not know God. How does that happen? Because they didn't tell the truth. Because they didn't tell the truth. Who didn't tell the truth? Joshua and that entire generation did not tell the truth. They they said, oh, Smith, you can't say that. You don't know that. How can you be be so presumptuous that you can uh, assume what happened or didn't happen? I'm not trying to assume that saying Joshua never said a word. I'm trying to say that Joshua and that generation did not assume or did not ensure that that next generation knew God. Well, Spence, that's a little bit harsh. You're trying to say that Joshua didn't tell anybody? I'm not saying what Joshua did and didn't do. I'm just telling you, as we talked about last Sunday, the proof is found in the pudding. The fruit is found on the tree. Two things that are different cannot be the same. It's one of those things that how do we get to the point where we have a generation that does not know God? It's because the generation before them did not tell them about God. Let me put it a different way. Because you all just seem like you're catching on that one. We educate the next generation. I know right now they're trying to push to the mandatory preschool all day preschool. Next thing you know, we're going to be having them at two years old starting at some type of an education program. And we're going to start them in the womb, in vitro. We're going to start an education program in the next coming decades. But we have this nationalized means of education. They come in and we educate our children. We bring them in. We teach them how to write. We teach them how to add. We teach them how to do science. We teach them how to... Now we teach them a lot of athletics, but we we teach them, we educate them, social science and governments and all these things. We educate our children. We even train the next generation. We have vocational technical schools all throughout the United States, even here in Oklahoma. You want to learn a trade? You want to learn a skill? You can go to this Votech. You can go to Job Corps. You can go to the military. You can get a skill. You can get a trade. You can get a job skill set. We are training the next generation. We show the next generation. By and the way that we live and the things that we do and we model and we are teaching and we are raising up these people. Why? Because whether we admit it or not or whether we say it out loud or not, we recognize that we are responsible for the next generation. And the next generation will be a product of our generation. And we realize that in order for us to pass down these legacies and for us to pass down these beliefs and in order to pass down the values and to pass down the priority and the devotion and the commitment to God, it begins with us. So brothers and sisters, based upon what I'm seeing here in verse 10, based upon what we see, what is it that God is wanting us as the church to do? 
to tell the truth. What do you mean by the truth, Spence? I'm talking about the truth of Jesus Christ. What is their hope for tomorrow? Jesus. What is their need for today? Jesus. What is the ailment that is plaguing the world? It is not political. It's not governmental. It is not health. It is not social. It is not economical. It is not racial. It is not gender. It is people are given to sin. And that sin manifests itself in all Forms of disordered and disorganized behaviors and actions. The maladies that plague people's lives is the sin of people's lives. So what is the cure? What is the help? What is the hope? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's understanding that they are a sinner. Understanding they need to be forgiven from that sin. Understanding that they're going to die one day, spend an eternity in either heaven or hell. And they need to understand that through Jesus, in Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they can live faithfully to God. That's what they need to hear. That's the truth that we need to proclaim. And yet, so many of our households assume it's the preacher's job to teach the children. So many of our households think it's the Sunday school teacher's job to teach the children. So many of our households have already outsourced the education and the training of their children to the school system. So now it's the school system's job to teach my child how to add, to teach my child how to read. What happened to parents raising their children? That we already outsourced all of that. So now we're just going to outsource the spiritual side of that. And brothers and sisters, church, if we do not tell those around us and those coming after us the truth of who God is and what God expects of us, how can we expect for them to know God and the things of God? So it says right there in verse 10, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. I realize that 3,400 years we're still talking about this story so there was some level of success. But do we want that to be our story? But as soon as this generation died, the next generation rose up and the church just closed its doors. You can drive down Main Street and you can see the empty doors and the empty buildings. You can go back in generations of decades ago and you can see pictures of Main Street. And the hustle and the bustle and the people. And all of the commerce that was taking place. And all of the fellowship that was taking place. And all of the times that the big events were had. And just a matter of one or two generations. What a change. I wonder when we look to the next decade, two decades three decades of this church. What kind of legacy, what kind of a heritage did we want to pass down to them? My time is gone, but let's quickly move to the very bottom of the notes. I just want to quickly remind you of three truths about our future. 
whether it's your future today, whether it's your future tomorrow, whether it's your future next month. Or maybe when you think about it in the future, you can think about it in your children. You can think about it in your grandchildren. You can think about your nieces, your nephews. You can think about your friends. You can think about your coworkers. You can think about your family. Many of us are going to gather together uh, this afternoon and we're going to have some type of a celebration this afternoon or this evening. We're going to get together with people and we're going to celebrate the 4th of July. And we're going to think, oh, we celebrate this as a uh, remembrance of the Declaration of Independence. And we're going to think about these things. And when you're thinking about these things, what kind of future are we going to leave to this church or this community concerning God? So three truths that I want to leave you with and we'll be done. Our future will prioritize something or someone. Our future will prioritize something or someone. It's not that we in this room don't have things that we hold valuable or things that we hold dear or things that we look up to. Every single one of us has a list of priorities. Every single one of us, if they called you at this moment and said your house is burning down, every single one of us would say, I got to get this, 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 and this. The rest of it can go. Every single one of us, if a tragedy happened and I said, you need to go home and pack something to leave. You already have an idea of what you hold as valuable in your life. Every single one of us have priorities. But we also know that not only us, but those around us, our future will prioritize something or someone. Are we going to prioritize God? And the vehicle by which God has given us to fellowship with one another and to reach the lost world? Are we going to prioritize the bride of Jesus Christ? Are we going to prioritize the church that Jesus died for? Are we going to prioritize reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we going to prioritize celebrating holiness, celebrating commitment? Are we going to prioritize this word and what this word means to us? Or are we going to prioritize the thorns of this world? Not only will our future prioritize something or someone, but this future, our future, will follow someone's example. You're going to follow someone's example. You may say, I I like to create my own ways. I like to do my own thing. (laughs) There is nothing new under the sun. Solomon already said that in Ecclesiastes. You're not forging your own path. You're just going down a path that someone else has already gone down. You ever hear a preacher that gets up and they say they found some new revelation, they found some new insight from the Word of God? Leave. That's scary. You're telling me that over 2,000 years of biblical scholarship, this cracker has found something new that the last 2,000 years no one could come up with? Ah. You might say, well, I'm doing my own thing. I'm going my own path. I've got my own way of living. I'm going to tell you that everybody has their own ideas until they stand before God. And then it doesn't matter what your ideas are. It only matters what God's ideas are. And we're going to follow someone's example. Either you are going to follow the example of a godly figure in your life. Or you're going to follow the example of a rebellious figure in your life. You're going to follow someone's example. Our children... Our grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews, our young people, even in this church, are looking for us for models and examples of what to do. They're looking to see what it is that we're going to behave like, how we're going to act, where we're going to go. They're looking for an example to follow. And then this last one will be done. Our future will worship someone. You were created to worship. God loves you. 
God created you in the image of himself. And part of that innate creation is a desire to worship. And it may not be that you come and you worship through song when Isaac leads us. You may not come and you may not sit here and really engage in worshiping God by studying and applying His Word, responding to His Word in our lives. That may not be the way that you worship. But every single one of us worship. Some people worship by being devoted to a TV show. Some people, by being, some people worship by driving or riding in that which they idolize. Some people worship through relationships. Some people worship through a possession. Some people worship through an activity. Everybody worships. Well, Spence, I don't think that's true. You see, I don't, I don't think you can say that everybody worships. I can tell you that everybody worships because worship is what we do with the gods in our lives. And if you have multiple gods in your lives, that means you're worshiping multiple things. And you say, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to tell you, either you are worshiping the gods of this world, the thorns, the snares that the, the, the angel of God told us about, or you are worshiping God, big capital G. You are worshiping something. And our future, my future, will worship someone. What is your future going to worship? Is your future going to worship God? The things of God? Faithfulness to God? Or is your your future going to worship this world? Judges chapter 2, we get a picture of the people. They come to the end. The mistakes caught up with them. And God comes in and says, this isn't the way to maintain success. This isn't the way to live faithfully before me. I pray that this morning we can look at the examples of the people here in Judges and to learn. And to learn what we need to do today. To live faithfully for the future of our tomorrows. So I hope that we will seek to celebrate obedience. To confront the thorns. To shun the lip service. And to tell the truth. Not because your today depends upon it. But because our tomorrow depends upon it. Bow your heads with me.